This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Cabinet HR, we deliver HR to companies for four and for your people. Cabinet HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Our guest today is Rand Fiskin. Rand, are you ready to be great today? Yeah, let's do it. Rand Fiskin is a co-founder and CEO of SparkToro. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his blogging, video, speaking, and his book, Lost and Founder. When Rand's not working, he's most likely to be in the company of his partner in marriage and mostly petty crime author Geraldine DeRuiter. If you feed him great pasta or great whiskey, he'll give you the cheat code to rank number one on Google. Rand, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. So Rand, this first question is probably the most important question I asked you through the whole interview. What are your go-to whiskeys? <laughs> go-to whiskeys? Yeah, good, 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 good question. Uh, let's see. So I'm a huge fan of the Tasmanian uh, Sullivan's Cove. I think they... Um, make something really extraordinary. They, uh, I think they won the world whiskey championship, uh, a few years ago, three or four years ago. And yeah, their, their stuff is outstanding. Very hard to get, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. In terms of Scottish whiskeys, I, gosh, what I've, I've been really liking Springbank been one of my favorite. The, I think they're the last distillery left in Campbelltown, unfortunately, but they're a great one. And Rand, do you have any favorite whiskey bars in Seattle or anywhere else? Uh, you know, I used to go when I, back when I lived on Capitol Hill, I used to go to, uh, uh, Tavern Law, uh, all the time and, and love that spot. Uh, nowadays, well, obviously nowadays I can't go anywhere. None of us can, <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, when I visit Portland, I try to visit the Multnomah Whiskey Library. I don't know if you've ever been there, but pretty extraordinary experience. Yeah. There's a one on second street called the Whiskey Bar. I'm a big fan of, I go there every once in a while. So, Rand, um, you, you dropped out of college. You didn't finish. I think you were a semester, semester from finishing that. And obviously, you've done okay since then. With all the stuff going on now in the current situation, like, you know, online classes, you know, the, the model, the business model of college is like getting flipped around. What do you see the future of colleges? Like, do people even need to go to college, go to college anymore? Because, like, well, I mean, what's the use, right? I mean, I think that uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the value of a college degree is probably still very, very high. Um, I, you know, I used to think, oh yeah, you could drop out of college just like I did. And what does it matter? Right. And, uh, statistically speaking, that's just not the case, right? The, the difference between a college degree and no college degree in the United States, especially where, where we have such wealth inequality means, you know, the difference between having healthcare, the difference between having, um, you know, savings in the bank versus always being on the, on the edge, um, yeah, the, the statistics for health and for um, the health of your your kids and family and just everything. It, I, I don't I don't know that it's going to go away. I think that there will be probably a reckoning around a lot of the I don't know what to, what they call them exactly like the private um, uh, low prestige universities. I think that some of those might um, might start to fade away. 
in terms of value. And I do worry that online college, uh, online university in general, Jason, is, I think, probably misses out on a ton of the value. Um, because I think a lot of the value of, of college, unfortunately or fortunately, is network building as opposed to just education. And it's really hard to build that network uh, through remote learning. Yeah, because if you're a person in college, you don't even know the person that gets you might be, you know, a father of a company you want to apply to, or you just never know. If you're taking online classes, there's no way you can make the connections, you know? That's right. Yeah. So with a college, is it more of a matter like people hiring can't get out of the mind frame, like they have to have a college degree? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a huge um bias in HR teams and departments and and people who do hiring of all kinds. I think it's going to exist for many decades to come still that a college degree is sort of a um, like a signifier that you're one of us, right? And uh, and I think that sucks. Like I don't I don't think it's correct. I've worked with plenty of people and I hired plenty of people at Moz who were not who did not go to college or who never graduated. Um, and they were they were great, but for a lot of folks, the, your resume just never even gets put in the review pile uh, if you don't have that degree. Yeah, I'm a big believer that college really doesn't measure your smarts, right? All it measures is can you stick with something for four or five years, right? Can you do it? I think it measures the, the wealth of your family. Yeah, like more than anything else, it basically says, does your family have money? Good, you can have a job. I agree. I'm a little cynical on this front. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people, a lot of us are. Rand, so at Moz, you, you grew Moz from seven to 134 people. What was the key factor of having such, uh, you know, growth? Well, let's see. Um, first off, I'll say I, I, I am not sure that, that measuring growth by people is the right metric or vector. Um, I don't think I would do it again, right? If I had Moz to do over again, I would have hired far fewer people. Um, I did not need that many. And I got, I got biased by a lot of the, I don't know, uh, media and, you know, by my, uh, peer group in the, in the venture capital entrepreneur community, um, that, that one of my, you know, what the badge you want to show off is how big is your company and the how big is not measured by revenue or profitability, uh, it is measured by amount of people and uh, growth rate of, of, of people and team. And that's, it's a terrible metric. Uh, that being said, you know, the things that really helped Moz's growth um, to get to that part of the question were we built, you know, we built a very successful marketing flywheel that sort of scaled with decreasing friction, right? Allowing us to, to make, um, to attract more and more people to, uh, our website and our products and to try uh, our, our, um, our service uh, at a decreasing amount of investment per person, right? And that, um, that flywheel, sort of the inverse, the opposite of a growth hack, uh, scaled really, really well over time. Very tough to build up initially and then got better and better as it went on and on. I think the other thing was market timing, right? When we came out with, with our SEO software suite, almost no other SEO software products existed. None of them were cloud-based. None of them were really good. Um, and that was a huge part of how we took off. Uh, so too was, you know, we were very close to our customers those, those first five, six years. We were really building things that they actually wanted and needed. We 
we were like them, right? We were building for ourselves and also for our customers. I think that helped a lot too. And so you you saying you, you felt that kind of pressure to grow so fast because you had VC money? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think I felt pressure specifically to grow the team artificially, right? Um, there was a lot, of, a lot of this idea, foolish idea, that the size of your team was indicative of your success, right? That it like made you look like a better entrepreneur or something um, or a, a more important founder, right? If I told people I managed 100 people instead of 40 people, they were more impressed, even though... I probably should have been managing 40 people with the same revenue. That would have been way better for everyone involved. And not only that, the difference in salaries from 40 to 100, like, you know. Yeah. 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 And we didn't, you know, we didn't need to raise that second round or the third round of funding. I I don't think it was, you know, it was not really, um, it was not well used by us. I think it made us unfocused and undisciplined. Um, you know, we used it primarily to, to grow the team and to grow our technology spend. It didn't really help customers, which is, which is dumb. And Moz is, is, is headquartered in the Seattle area, correct? Yeah, that's right. And we were hiring these people. We go from 7 to 134. It was a whole team in Seattle? Yep. A uh, whole team Seattle. And what, can you talk about some of the challenges back then, like as far as hiring people, developers? Just, I mean, the oh, yeah. talent is like, you know, especially developers. It was brutal, right? Brutal. Just um, trying to compete for talent was a constant battle. I think I probably spent 50% of my job was trying to make Moz appealing to software engineers as a place to work, right? And that was um, promoting it on and offline. I, I Between 2010 and 2016, especially, I did a ton of local you know, events and, um, we spent, uh, millions and millions of dollars making our office beautiful, trying to, um, you know, provide sort of services that would attract developers, everything from, you know, the same things that Google does, right. Fancy food and, um, you know, a lot of, uh, whatever toys and games and stuff like that at the office and, um, you know, fancy machines, fancy benefits, all all that type of stuff. And yeah, was that, was that what we should have done? You know, I think our, um, our competitors, uh, which, which were based in, which still are uh, Moz's competitors, which are based in like Ukraine, Russia, Singapore, they, they didn't do any of that stuff. Right. They just built small teams of engineers. Well, I shouldn't say small, but, um, they built, you know, teams of engineers that focused on the work and productivity, and they did not try and play the how do we compete with Google and Facebook uh, types of games. I think their their average engineer salary costs were somewhere between half, you know, a quarter and half of ours per engineer. So we were spending, I think Moz All In was spending about a quarter of a million dollars to $300,000 per engineer per year. That's sort of salary benefits, you know, cost of um, uh, space for them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I'm building my own startup now. And like the people not from Seattle, they're like, man, you're, you're, you're Seattle, so you're getting a start, an industry with no problem. They don't realize, you know, like, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, are, you know, paying like crazy amount of money. And the ones who graduate from like a Kona Academy after six months, you know, they really don't have the skills to do what you want, right? So... It's, you know, it's like, what do you do, right? So, yeah, it's definitely a challenge, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Rand, 
I've been following you for a while. And first I started following you. Did you, did you do your mouth whiteboards? Are you still doing those? Like some kind of whiteboard or anything? Yeah, like yeah. That? Check, check it out. Uh, you can see here in my, my little office here, I've got a, a whiteboard um, in this shed behind my house. So yeah, still, uh, still doing whiteboard videos. I don't, um, I don't do sort of the formal whiteboard Friday approach, but I still um, make whiteboard videos for Spark Toro, and I occasionally will will pitch one for Moz uh, if they're sort of desperate and need another one. Um, so, what was the inspiration for that? Because I think those are just great. You know, like you just used to go every Friday, do a quick class on SEO market. I mean, those are so useful. Like, how did that come about? Why a whiteboard? Why that format? <laughs> uh, it was a total accident. We. Let's see. I, I was. Um, it was back when Moz had maybe seven or eight team members, and one of them had ordered. I think we had ordered a video camera for something else. I can't remember exactly what else. But uh, I was explaining an SEO concept to someone, to one of our like consultants. Um, this is back when we were doing consulting uh, on a whiteboard, and he was like, "Wait, wait, wait." Let me get the camera and film this. <laughs> maybe it'll maybe it'll turn into something. And we put it up. It didn't do very well, but it got I don't know. It it made us interested enough to like, hey, let's try that again. Let's try it a few more times. Um, and really, what it did at the time was save me from writing a blog post. I was blogging five nights a week, and it was really nice to have Thursday night off <laughs> um, and get the you know get an get an extra free night and have that video. Uh, turned into a blog post. So that that was the initial motivation. And then Whiteboard Friday started picking up traction. And I'm actually a big believer now, Jason, in the value of episodic content. I think it's I think episodic content is not necessarily the future of content marketing, but I think it is absolutely uh, one of the most powerful ways you can build up a flywheel through content because you sort of gain subscribers over time and you gain people who pay attention to it. The, the brand value of having that piece of that same piece of content associated with you over and over again, hugely valuable. And then having a library of content in a similar format. So you know that every fan you attract for whatever you're doing, you know, they, they have dozens or hundreds of episodes they can go watch again. Awesome. I agree. I think there's so many people out there, especially when starting companies, who don't realize the power of like, I mean, you have to put yourself out there, right? I mean, it's going to be horrible probably the first few times you do it, right? You, that camera's going to be bad, like, it's, it's, but you got to put it out there and just refine it and, and, and practice and practice, right? Because like, worst thing you do is like start a company and launch it, you know, July 1st and like they Google your name and nothing pops up, right? Yeah, that's... Uh... I really, really recommend that you do marketing and build your following in your community before you build your company, right? That was, that was, that's what made Moz successful, right? The fact that we had thousands of people visiting the Moz blog every day and they were all in the SEO field. And so when we launched software, even though it was mediocre at best, you know, a lot of them gave it a spin. And that helped us kind of get off the ground, helped us see the value, helped us see uh, that there was you know, traction to be had there. Same thing happened with SparkToro. You know, we launched, um, I guess, a month ago, exactly today. And because we built up this community of people who knew what we were trying to build and were interested in, in uh, you know, this sort of audience intelligence software, you know, we had a big email list of folks to reach out to. We had a lot of folks who paid attention to our launch. It was uh, very, yeah, very meaningful. And, and I, would, I would do that again if I were starting another company. 
And best damn thing too, like you put yourself out there, people will engage with you and give you feedback what you're doing, right? And that way you can refine and get better versus, you know, staying in your garage, so to speak, and just, you know, doing whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the worst, the worst mistakes I ever made at Moz were when I, you know, went into a room and, and built something, uh, designed something for us to build without getting direct customer input and feedback and validating. So, Rand, December 2019, January 2020, you're someone's a senior in college, you know, the world's an oyster, you know, the plane of college graduations, you know, you know, they're living their best life. They have some jobs lined up that all send them, bam, COVID-19 hits and that everything has changed. Yeah. So yeah. What would be your advice to people who want to go to marketing in today's current situation? What should they be doing? Um, I think, uh, I think a few things are probably, um, right moves. I mean, number, number one is I would, I would specialize, right. I would find a sector or niche that I cared about that I was really interested in. And I would start, uh, creating whatever it is, content, software, tools, interactive products, services, um, Around that, I would start helping people for free. I would start um, building up my uh, resume, even if nobody, even if nobody else is involved, right? I would start building up my uh, repertoire, my portfolio of what I've got uh, to show off. And I think now is, um, you know, it's a very, very rough time to try and pitch yourself for paid work, and it's a pretty easy time to. Uh, do things on your own, right? So the web is big and broad. There's more attention online than ever before, right? All of us, you can see the um, one of the fascinating stats around COVID is desktop time uh, per adult is way up for the first time in like a decade, right? Uh, mobile was kind of dominating until now, and now uh, now desktops making a comeback. Uh, so I think there's opportunity there. the The other thing I would say for sure is. Um, if there are uh, skills that you want to invest in, now's a very decent time to do that as well, right? Um, I think now's a great time to be creative, invest in um, your artistic side and your you know fun side, uh, especially if you can afford to. That's uh, not a bad not a bad use of time either. And you know, as far as uh, getting a job goes, I would pay attention to sectors that are growing. Uh, despite the pandemic. So you can see a few of those, right? E-commerce is growing um, considerably and, and pretty obviously. A lot of online tools, um, a lot of things that help with remote work, uh, a lot of things that are centered around uh, saving people saving people and businesses money rather than helping them with growth. That sort of positioning uh, has switched so those are sectors that I might invest in. And we've done the same thing with SparkToro, tried to think about like, hey, how do we uh, help businesses that are, um, I don't want to say like positively affected, but, but have a positive trajectory coming out of this, um, this pandemic. And I'll tell HR people the same thing all the time. Like people trying to find a job at HR, like I tell them no trying to find an HR job, find an industry you want to work on, learn that industry and then get an HR job, right? Sure. Yeah. Instead, like, you know, spraying like the, all these jobs, find an industry you want to, you know, work in, you know, whether it be tech or, you know, maybe the fish industry or whatever the case may be. And the thing is, like, the economy is bad, but people start hiring, right? I mean, because I did a job webinar about a month ago 
and I and I found a link where it's like these two hundred job companies are hiring. Right? So there's still jobs yeah. out there. Yeah. There are, there are, and there, and there will be again, right? I think that, um, you know, my, my expectation is sometime in the next six to 12 months, there will in fact be, you know, a lot of the demand loss that, uh, not all of it, certainly, but, but a good portion, maybe half of it or more, half of that demand loss is in fact, just pent up future demand, right? It's basically pause, not, uh, not a true, you know, death of, of all this, um, consumer demand, business demand. And so you're going to see an upswing and there will be a lot of hiring needs. Uh, I think we'll, we'll probably see, you know, half of the jobs that have been lost in the United States uh, recover relatively rapidly sometime between six and nine months from now. And then to go back to the economic decisions about colleges, right? I think another thing too, like, is this everyone's economic situation is different, right? So, yeah. both those two graduates, one graduate, you know, had, you know, came from a well-off family, you know, they can go live back home, you know, so they can probably, you know, like take a break, you know, or, or work for a starter for free, right? Where someone else comes from a single parent household, you know, and this family's counting him to get a job, like right now, right? I mean, right. totally. So, this one who can go work for a startup, he works for a startup, the startup takes off, he gets, you know, pretty good money where they go IPO eggs or whatever other guy with a bad economic background, he has to work nine to five with a BS job making like 60,000 years versus life. Right. So like, like you said, it's all back to the economic situations. Yeah. Well, and, and startup world, right. is extremely, uh, you know, it's much, much riskier than I think people make it out to be. Even, even if your startup, you know, takes off, so to speak. Um, most of the people, most of the people at a startup that are, is very successful will make, no money, right? Less than they would if they worked at a big tech company or big company in general, uh, because of the way stock options work, dilution works, future funding rounds work. Um, yeah, you you could get extremely lucky and have that like IPO hit, but but it's such a crapshoot. Uh, it's remarkable to see what percent of employees at unicorns, unicorns, right? The the billion dollar plus valued uh, tech startups actually have real paydays it's tiny it's yeah, and, we're, and we're gonna talk about this later but the thing is like most star founders have no idea about equity investing that kind of stuff so the regular employee definitely has no clue what's going on <laughs> i mean no, the media's I mean, done the media's done a good job of selling one of the sexiness of it you know well and yeah i mean right the venture industry sort of uh foots the bill for a lot of the media around this in indirectly and directly um and so there's this uh, infuriating false narrative that's been crafted in the entrepreneurship and startup space that essentially, you know, you could hit it big and, and the chances of hitting it big are, are just miserable. You know, um, uh, my own example is not a perfect one, but, uh, you know, Moz is a $55 million a year company, maybe more than that. Um, it is profitable to the tune of, you know, 10% a year. So kicking off five, $6 million a year, um, growing, but slowly. Right. Uh, and, and it's basically a venture failure, right? The, the, the that's, stock I, I hold. That's, to me, this gets crazy. A $55 yeah. million dollar company, you're, you're considered a failure. And I was like, what can, can we all feel like that? Right. Sure. Yeah. But well, and this is the problem, right? Because once you, once you raise venture, if you're not that sort of billion dollar unicorn or hundred million revenue plus company growing at hopefully about 20 to 30% year over year or more with certain kinds of margins and certain types of, you know, churn profiles of your customers, blah, 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 blah. You're just not a fit for 
uh, the model. And therefore, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out well. Um, so, you know, when I, when I left Moz, my stock, I still hold, you know, almost 20% of the stock in Moz, I think maybe 18% of Moz's stock, but it's not liquid, right? It's not like I can use that money to buy a candy bar, <laughs> it's not, um, right? So I, I have some savings from my salary and, you know, my wife sold her book and I, I sold mine and like that, you know, that sort of, um, those dollars exist, but the, the money from us, who knows, will it ever turn into something? I don't know, right? And I was making under market, I was making an under market salary my entire 17 year career there. I would have made way more, way, 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 way more as a junior software engineer at Google or Amazon. So we're going to keep on the subject uh, for your new company, SparkToro. You went about fundraising in a different way. Can you talk about your process for that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, obviously I didn't, didn't have the, the kind of wealth to start, start a company uh, like SparkToro, which requires, you know, a significant amount of upfront investment for, for, before there's a product. And so we raised money from uh, a number of angel investors. Uh, they put money into our LLC. So they own units of the LLC and that uh, those units essentially uh, entitle them to kind of a profit sharing model. Uh, when SparkToro makes money, right? When it has a profitable year, we can choose to reinvest the money into growth in the future, or we can choose to pay out dividends uh, to our investors. And when we pay them back the the money that they invested in, that we raised 1.3 million. So once we pay back the 1.3 million, uh, then Casey and I, are the, the founders um, and our employees can also participate in profit sharing. So kind of our first goal is like get investors their money back. And then everybody participates in profit sharing pro rata, the amount of ownership that they have. It's, it's a, it's weirdly unique, but, um, it makes a ton of sense. The only, the only reason why it's not popular anymore is because in the 1970s, a bunch of, you know, very wealthy people, uh, lobbied the U S government to, um, extend the capital gains tax rate to investors in private companies who held their stock for more than a certain number of years. And so venture capital sort of was built on this model of, I can get long-term capital gains rate on my uh, investments in, in venture-backed um, sorts of stocks. And so if you, you know, if you were to take that, that capital gains rate away, SparkToro's model you know, is, is a clear winner. Um, but we kind of said, eh, we don't care about the tax dodge. Like, let's, uh, let's go for this, this model and this structure. It's really fair to investors. It's really fair to founders. And it sort of creates an incentive for us to have a long-term, survivable, profitable business, which, which is looking smarter and smarter every day right now. So is this kind of along the lines of the lighter capital model? Or is this something different? Yeah, let's see. So, so lighter capital, indie VC, earnest capital, um, tiny seed fund, right? There's a handful of these, uh, ClearBank up in Canada. There's a handful of these like alternative investment structures that, um, I think are, are trying to present some competition to the venture space. And I, I hope, I hope there's going to be some oxygen in the room and the media narrative, uh, for those companies. What I worry about is that there's such a focus, especially in the American press, on um, a few big companies and how these unicorns hit it big. 
as opposed to, hey, look, here's a hundred companies that are profitable and successful and survive and kind of do well year to year versus here's one company that hit it big and the 900 companies that died in the, in the same portfolio, right? It just doesn't, I, I don't know why that story is so much sexier to tell, but unfortunately it is. And so that's the, that's the narrative that kind of pervades the entrepreneurial atmosphere right now. So for this model you use, I mean, of course, like you're Rand Fiskin, right? You're pretty well known. I mean, you're no name. Yeah, and like, reasonable. And, and, yeah, and I saw the investors and you, and you had, right? There's some pretty big names. At least, at least I know who they are, right? I mean, can someone like, like me, I don't see how I could use this model, right? Because I went to a VC angel investor with your plan. They were probably like throwing me out of the office, right? So how would somebody like me... So we've uh, three other startup firms, probably companies that you have uh, not heard of, founders that I hadn't heard of, um, with investors that I hadn't heard of, use the SparkToro funding model to raise money for their businesses as well. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I kind of disagree. I think I think uh, anyone can use this model. It's it's very very investor friendly, um, right? If you're an investor and you say, "Well, gosh, you know, I put money into ten startups." Two of them raised venture, maybe in 10 to 20 years, I'll know whether I did a good job investing. Eh? Right? A, lot, a lot of investors that we talk to, um, angel investors who have $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 to put into something, right? if, they, if they like your company, they, they might see the SparkToro model as being far more compelling because they put it in. And then within the first few years, you know, hopefully you are paying them back dividends every year. That's... Instead of having to wait really for meaningful. someone to buy the company or do an IPO way down the road. Right. If, if there is an IPO or if, there, or if someone buys the company, they win huge, just like they do in a venture situation. Uh, the only difference being instead of getting capital gains tax rate at you know, 20%, they get ordinary income rate at 35 or 40%. Right? So they're paying more in taxes if there's a huge win. That's the, that is the fundamental core downside to the SparkToro model versus the venture model. The positive side is you and they have a shared incentive for being a profitable, for getting to profitability rather than maximizing growth and sort of, or die trying, right? And the, the gap between the couple of unicorns and the rest of the portfolio for the vast majority of, of venture-focused uh, startups, I think makes that model much less compelling than a model focused on getting your profitability, paying your investors back, right? Because then they haven't lost anything, right? If you get, you put 20 grand into SparkToro and three years from now, you've gotten 25 grand out of it. You're kind of like, great. I love it. You know, that's nice. And then, and then someday there might be a big payday too. And I don't, I mean, are you going to be infuriated that when that, if, when, if, and when that big payday comes, you paid 20% more in tax? I don't know. Maybe you will. So with this with your model, do you think most VCs and angel investors will be willing to change their mind, like change their mindset? I think some of those like are like on the mindset, you know, super like you know, super bowl champion, nothing at all, you know, billion dollar company or, or failure. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. They have that bifurcated mindset and they are locked into it. And I, I don't think, you know, with the exception of a few of these folks who talk about earnest lighter capital, uh, NDVC, right, um, clear bank, I, I think most you know, like a lot of people um, around their, their mindsets broadly, once you have an opinion, you will reject all evidence. Um, so, so moving on, 
I mean, you're living this life right now, you know, as a, as a you know, basically, I mean, you're not a new founder, but you just started a company again. Um, let's suppose that someone started a company, have no experience in startup or right. They just start a company, you know, that has some traction. What advice do you have for them in the current situation? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I really regret not joining uh, a startup or two before I began my own. I think it, I think it's hugely, hugely valuable to get the experience to see what you like and don't like, what works and doesn't. Even if the even if the experience isn't a great one, right? Even if you don't love everything that's going on, I really suggest joining a couple of early stage companies before you become a founder. Um, the other thing I definitely do, like we talked about earlier, is uh, build your network first, right? Build your expertise. Use your expertise to help people to build your network, and then share that to build a community of people who care about what you're doing, right? And a, and a sort of, you know, an email list, some website traffic, some, some kind of a marketing flywheel that is bringing people to your property, uh, your brand before you ever launch. I, I really worry about this whole, and I see so many startups just, just fail because of it, right? They sort of spend a couple of years building a product, launch the product, and then expect that's going to drive people to them. And it, it, it doesn't work that way, right? People have to hear about you and your product and your company 7, 10, 15 times before they like kind of go check it out and see if it's right for them. And um, it is a slow, slow trickle. Uh, so build that community first. Like how many people build great products? I mean, it's, it's a perfect product. It works great, but no one cares about it. Like I didn't, ask, I didn't ask for this. What do I need this for? And you can see you can see this in so many examples, right? So many folks point to whatever it is. They point to Airbnb. They point to uh, uh, Uber or Lyft. They point to Zoom. They point to whatever, and they're like, "This is just a clone of this other company that existed before." Why did why didn't that one get traction? Yeah. A lot of times, it's the tenth clone. <laughs> that gets the traction and not the first version. So I really would urge folks not to prioritize product exclusively over marketing. I'm definitely a big fan of before you start your startup, work for someone else first, right? I mean, because there's no way you're going to learn so much. Now, some people will say, well, why am I going to go work for someone else? They're going to do things the wrong way. Well, that's how you learn, right? And another at all, so you can just you can pick, up, pick, up the, pick up the network, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You pick up the network, you, you, you build relationships, you learn what works and doesn't. Um, a lot of the time you think, you know, they might be doing everything wrong. And then when you start your own thing, you're like, Oh, Oh, I see why they were doing it. <laughs> this or that, or the, the other thing you, you gain a lot more empathy, uh, for people in those situations when you start to do it yourself. And you oftentimes find end arounds, right? Um, you identify problems that existed before that now you don't have to face when you're going through it. So, Ryan, we're both in the Seattle area. We're both pretty involved in the Seattle startup scene and tech scene. So, Seattle area, I think, takes a lot of criticism for different items, like some, some, some legit, some probably not legit. But from your point of view, what can people in Seattle do to improve the entrepreneurial spirit and some entrepreneurial, you know, um, ecosystem here? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think that there is, you know, big focus in Seattle on the big tech companies. And no surprise, right there, they they have extremely generous compensation, um, and there's a lot of security uh, in those in those companies. Um, I, I think that the the startup world of Seattle um, needs a few things. It it needs 
it needs more people being willing to invest, right? More people being willing to invest dollars and uh, invest in amplifying early stage businesses here. Um, unlike the Bay Area, we, um, we're a little bit quieter online and offline about new businesses. I think we get a lot more excited about a new bar or restaurant than we do about a new, uh, new tech company, which is okay. I get excited about new bars and restaurants too. Um, but I think that that, uh, that, that is something that, that needs to change. I think there um, is a lot of opportunity for new businesses to exist in Seattle. Um, there's just not as much risk tolerance culturally and so I think that's probably something that has to change. And part of me thinks that uh, alternative funding models are the way to do that, right? If you look at the outcome of venture-backed companies and you say, man, you know, whatever it was, 40,000 uh, startups raised money, raised a seed round or more last year. And in five years, less than a thousand of those will survive. I don't like those odds. I agree with you. Right. I mean, I look at the restaurant business, which, you know, you and I know is, is it generally speaking thought of as a terrible business, but their five year and 10 year survival rates are many multiples of the tech startup world. And so I think part of what we need is if, if we're going to have this cultural aversion to risk, we need to think about how do we fund and incentivize startups to survive rather than purely grow or die trying. I agree. And like, from my limited point of view, like I know five startup founders who like couldn't even get meetings in Seattle, right? And went to the Bay Area, went to one Bay, to Austin, one New York, one Boston, got funding like in six months, right? Yeah, and I mean, so, some of that's anecdotal, but it's also true that Seattle does not have great venture funds, right? Uh, we've got a few local venture investment companies, but a very, very small number literally like five or fewer, right? Um, we're, we're uh, what are we? I think we're 40 times the size of Boulder, Colorado and have fewer venture firms. <laughs> it's a little weird, right? Um, the, uh, and the, the reality is also that I think we have very unwilling to invest angels. I don't know why that is. We have a ton of millionaires. There's a lot of money here. There's a lot of people who should say, why would I put 25 or 50 grand into the stock market? I, I, I want to invest in my local community. I want to see more tech companies. I want to see more, um, more diversity in the field. I want to see more competition. I want to see uh, more uh, innovation. I want to see more uniqueness. Let me put my money where my mouth is. Right, as opposed to, oh, I wish, uh, I wish somebody would do that, but certainly isn't going to be me. Yeah. So before the COVID nineteen hit, I was going down the Bay Area a lot, spending time over there. I asked, and I asked a person this question. Right, he said he, and this was his theory. In the Bay Area, you know, all the investors have been a former entrepreneurs, former startup people. They've been in the ecosystem. He said his theory was in Seattle. Most angel investors are former Microsoft, former Amazon employees, big corporations. Say so really know how to invest, you know, and that's his theory, which kind of makes sense. If you think, if you want to think about it. I mean, my suspicion is we only need um, a, f a few dozen, a few hundred people can make a huge difference here, um, and that is, I think, that's both inspiring and frustrating. Right? It's frustrating that it doesn't exist yet, and it's inspiring in that if you're listening to this or if you're um, 
wondering whether you can make a difference, the answer is absolutely. I think one thing too, people in Seattle, we have to get a read the notes that we want to be the next San Francisco, right? No one's going to top San Francisco. They have a head start. No one's going to top them, but we can be the best Seattle system, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think this is where this is where Seattle has an opportunity to lead and succeed is to be an alternative, right? Not to say, how do we build a second market that's not quite as good, but follows in the footsteps and rather to say, hey, are you thinking about starting a tech company, but you don't want the uh, pressures and problems and structural insecurity of venture? Seattle might be awesome for you. Right? Seattle might be an alternative place. And I, I think culturally, that's what we're built for. Right? Seattle has always had kind of a counterculture to the mainstream, whether it's in food or music or arts or culture. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what I'd like to see from us. Yeah, I can't remember. I know you watched us like a startup incubator and doing a lot of great stuff in AR, VR, AI. I mean, to me, that's the place to invest, right? I mean, all that stuff they're doing up there. Potentially, I think there's I think there's surprisingly a ton of opportunity still on the table for very what do I want to say um, very simple sorts of technology products that just serve underserved markets, right? Uh, there's there's still a ton in healthcare and education and finance and content and e-commerce and supply chain and publishing and toys and games and a million other things, right? That, that uh, just frankly are underinvested in because they're not hot. They're not like the sexy thing everyone's talking about. Spark Toro, you know, my, my company, we, we were like mm, AI, AR, VR. We basically took a lit look at the list of all the, you know, hot trends. And we're like, nope, we're none of those. Not interested. <laughs> it's like, I don't care about that. I care about building a product that uh, my customers actually want and will find useful and that, that you know, taps into a, a, a painful problem point in the market that's underserved. Yes. I mean, there's definitely a lot of problems that need to be fixed in the world. Yeah. So, Rand, let's fix the social media. So those people like Gary Vee, you know, and all those like, you know, omni-channel approach, be everywhere all the time. Other people like, no, only be on one or two channels. What's your philosophy on that? I, I much prefer uh, being good at one thing first, right? So omni-channel approach is fine. Look, if you're a big, big brand, you have a huge presence, sure, go for it, right? But I, uh, if what you're really great at is uh, visual content, yeah, maybe maybe Pinterest and uh, Instagram are great for you, and TikTok is not right for you, and Twitter is not right for you, and LinkedIn is not so right for you. And why why do you need to be on all these places? I think if you can find one uh, tactical system that works really well for you that can scale with decreasing friction, that's where you should start doing your marketing. I think starting omni-channel, very frankly, is uh, you're gonna. Um, be more focused on quantity over quality, and you are not going to build that flywheel nearly as quickly. Um, so I would I would start small. I would go for the channels you know well that you're good at that you're that actually reach your audience. Right, that that's where you should be. If your audience isn't on a particular platform or uh, a particular publication doesn't resonate with your audience, why bother? Rand. 
in 2018, you wrote the book Lost and Founder, A Painfully Honest Guide to the Startup World. Can you talk about what um, motivated you write this book and why you wrote it? Why you found it important to write this book? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, it was a lot of conversations like this, Jason, um, like you and I are having, because my sense was, you know, some of the, you and I would like, I don't know, go out for coffee or something, right? We're both in Seattle. We'd go out for coffee. We'd go out for a beer. We'd chat about startup world and, and starting a company and, you know, all the things we did right and wrong and what we would and wouldn't do again. And I loved helping people like that. And, and I found that the same like 10 or 12 stories, same sort of 10 or 12 problems were brought up again and again and again. Um, and so Lost and Founder is basically an attempt to scale that, right? To say, hey, can I help a lot more people who I can't have those one-on-one conversations with to avoid making the same mistakes that I made? So um, let's talk about your, your current company, SparkToro. Can you talk about how it got built, your, you know, how it came about in your vision? I know you definitely, you want to build a different type of company. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the structure is, is different, but, but uh, to be honest, it's, it's not, um, not radically revolutionary in terms of how we built it, right? We, you know, I spent the first few months uh, after leaving Moz in, in 2018, just talking to a ton of our potential customers, right? People in the marketing world. I knew I... You know, I already had a lot of um, traction in web marketing world. And so I knew I wanted to give myself kind of a, a little bit of a softball there, um, at least on that front, and talk to a ton of potential customers about uh, specifically how they went about uh, figuring out which publications and people reach their audiences, right? So like if you and I want to start a new or, you know, um, uh, Cabinet HR is right, a, a great example. So. You know, you want to reach people in the in the HR field, right? People who have maybe things like HR director in their title or VP of people or those kinds of things, right? And you know that space really well. So you you probably already know the people in publications that a lot of folks follow. But if you're new to the field and you want to go, right, you're a consultant or an agency or you're just hired marketer or um, you're building a new product or focusing on a new segment... Figuring out that stuff is so hard. And right now, a, lot, a ton of marketers just throw money at Facebook and Google. So we saw, you know, we saw folks doing that, trying to figure out the targeting by doing like um, surveys and interviews, but self-reported data, as you know, is bleh, pretty crap for that. Um, and we were like, oh, there's a couple of really savvy folks who basically have, you know, in-house developers, engineers who built crawlers. They, they fed their email list of their existing customers into something like full contact, which gives you like all their social profiles. And then they'd go crawl all those social profiles and uh, aggregate them, pull everything that they followed, shared, linked to, and then build that as like their targeting list. Right? So now we know these podcasts, publications, conferences and events, webinars, email lists, uh, uh, websites, uh, social accounts, right? These are the ones that are paid attention to by our audience. And Casey and I went, that's smart. That is really smart. But it sucks that they have to spend like a hundred grand in six months building that. And, it, <laughs> and they only use it for themselves. Like, let's build that for everybody. And so that's, that's, that's where the idea for Spark Toro comes from. And what's your vision for the company? I mean, we are, I think we are hoping very much to 
build it into something that is truly useful for a ton of people and see what the, see what results from that rather than having like a, you know, we want to be a hundred million dollar year company, or we want to be a 50, you know, we want to have hire 50 people in the next two years or those kinds of things. My, my goal is solve this problem and then see how big this problem is. Right. And see where we can get to. So I want to stay laser focused on solving the question of, where are the what are the publications and people that my audience pays attention to? Answering that as quickly, as accurately, as thoroughly, um, and as valuably for our customers as we can, and then figuring out how big that market is and, and what else people need on top of that uh, that we could potentially build. So, Ryan, we kind of talked about this earlier, but like yourself, other CEOs, you know, have lots of personality, right? <laughs> it's like it's like, it's like I have a lot personality. Of Yes, you definitely oh, do. Uh, it's, not, it's not like a lot of successful CEOs either have personality or they do a great job of putting themselves out there, even if they're introverts, right? Sure. Talk about why as a CEO, you got to have some kind of personality, some kind of public charisma. I mean, at the very least, get out and talk to people versus staying in your garage and not meeting people. Why is that so important as a founder or CEO? I mean, I, I will say there's a, there's a wide spectrum of CEOs, right? I think there's some who are very, very introverted um, I'm probably like a little bit in the middle of the spectrum. I um, I like spending time with people. I like meeting new pe- people. But I'm also, you know, I'm one of those folks who after I give a conference talk and then like shake a bunch of hands, I immediately retreat to my hotel room and stay there for, you know, the next day. <laughs> I, I get very overwhelmed by people uh, pretty fast. Um, but I think at the core, the the role of CEO, especially early on, is about empathy. It's about being able to put yourself in the shoes of other people, your customers, your investors, if you're going that route, your employees and team, the media and press that, that's covering you or potentially covering you, your, your community in your niche, and, and being able to understand what will, what will resonate with them and what won't, right? What will be um, kind of wise to say and share and what won't be. And, um, my, you know, my experience has been that the the times in my career when I've been least successful are the ones where I didn't pay attention to what other people wanted, what other people cared about. And so, yeah, I think that that introvert expert scale, you can be anywhere on it, but empathy going deep on that, having a great understanding of what makes people tick and what makes what makes customers want to buy, what makes press want to cover you, what makes people want to in, interact or engage with you, or what turns them off. Um, that's a truly valuable skill. Rand, can you talk some about how HR is important to build in your company and just in general? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I mean, so HR is at the core of how a company exists, right? There, unless you're a company of one person and always will be, uh, HR is fundamental to how you build a culture uh, inside your team, a, a culture of work, a culture of um, personal interaction, and uh, having having great practices, having good process, uh, having good tools and skills, um, and being able to navigate the complexities of interpersonal relationships that that. The human race will always have. Um, this is this is this is core to uh, building a great company. I, I I don't I don't think you can make a much wiser investment than uh, than nailing HR. 
in a different subject, you bring a good point. Like, you know, people, 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 right? Since Adam and Eve, the, the Roman Empire, our tech has gotten better, but as humans, new humans are not changed, right? We're, we're basically the same people through history, I think. I mean, we've certainly, my, my sense is we've evolved massively. I think, I think generally speaking, people treat each other much better today than they did 200 years ago and 200 years ago, better than 400 and 400 better than 600. So I, change takes a long time. Sometimes it takes many generations, but, um, the, you know, broadly speaking, it's an upward trajectory. Hey, Rand, I forgot to ask you this during our pre-talk, but we're going to have some kind of gift or discount to give the listeners. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, we don't have anything like that, but uh, you can try SparkToro for free and we're doing a kind of like enhanced uh, free version. So anyone is welcome to sign up and register for free. Um, and if, uh, if anyone in the audience is um, in the educational not-for-profit space, uh, you can also email me and um, I've got a, a sort of special thing for, for those folks as well. Iran, can you share your personal social media and your company's social media so people can reach out to you? Sure, sure. Yeah. So my email is rand at sparktoro.com. Uh, my Twitter account where I'm most active is at randfish. And uh, I'm, I'm next most active on LinkedIn where I'm randfishkin. Hey, on Twitter, do you hear today of how, how they're going to change the Twitter up where before, like, before like, anyone could reply to your Twitter, now you can go there and say only certain people can or no one at all. What do you think? What's your... What do, you, what do you think about that? Gosh, I mean, I, my, my assumption is that the goal is to re- reduce the abuse that people often see. So, you know, my, um, my wife is very active on Twitter. She's, she's a, a popular kind of Twitter personality and an author. And very often when she tweets about uh, not even controversial things, right? But um, she will often get in her replies uh, really terrifying stuff. Right. And I think that, that Twitter is working to reduce that because they realize how badly that turns off a lot of their users, um, especially, you know, women and people of color, folks from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, it, you know, Twitter can be a true garbage pile um, from that perspective. And so I, I think the, the platform I, I'm I am encouraged by what I've seen from them the last two or three years on this front. I hope this change. Um, does similar things. I don't know if it will. I could see them pulling it back and be like, nope, that didn't work. Let's try something else. But we'll see. Yeah, I know a lot of big time HR people, like Twitter is like the HR platform of choice. But man, there's just so much trash on there. Like, I just think so many people like write things on social media under a fake name. They would never dare say to you in person, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, worse than that, it seems like social media is sort of emboldening people to say some of those things in person now. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a wide variety of opinions about why that behavior is resurgent in the United States. But um, yeah, I would, I would love to see people feel a lot more shame about their racism and sexism and, and derogatory language and just general shittiness. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, and to our listeners, we're going to have the links to um, Rand's gift and his offer and, and his uh, social media on our blog on our show notes and you go to the blog at www.chemisthlblog.com and be sure to share this episode with your friends. So Rand, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you give us advice or wisdom or anything you want to talk about? One of my big things that's proved valuable for me personally is if every, if all the, uh, 
you know, media and coverage and the environment you're swimming in and your peers around you are going in one direction, it can be really valuable to choose a different one. I'm a, I'm a big believer in being the exception to the rule. Van, I want to thank you for doing this, doing this for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for me. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And if you're an owner of a small company, 40 or less people, be sure to check out Cavendish HR at www.cavendishhr.com. Once again, thank you for your time and remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Cavendish Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Cavendish HR. Thank you and remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it up to